This is a special edition of the Press Center. I'm Steve Dunlop. 100 years ago, on the top floor of a building owned by the Westinghouse Corporation in Pittsburgh, an institution was born, and our world would never be the same. We are receiving these returns through the cooperation and by special arrangements with the Pittsburgh Post and Sun. The election returns will be broadcast... That's a reenactment of the world's very first news broadcast, November 2nd, 1920. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching. Station KDKA transmitting live presidential election results for the very first time, reporting a lopsided victory for a Republican senator from Ohio, Warren G. Harding. In the ensuing decades, electronic media would leapfrog over newspapers and magazines and become the dominant source of news for much of the world. The news of Europe, if you are just turning on your radios, Great Britain is now at war with Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain announced this fact. This broadcast brings you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Hello, Americans. This is Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. And they'll step off the limb. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful for me, Neil. Here in the U.S., the influence of radio newscasts and later TV newscasts would lead the anchor for the CBS Evening News to acquire the nickname of the most trusted man in America. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. President Carter delivers a special address to the United Nations. By the mid-1970s, according to the Gallup organization, nearly three-quarters of Americans expressed trust in the media. By 2016, that level of trust had fallen by half to just 32%. That trust has fallen across all age groups. And it's not just a party line phenomenon. According to Gallup, while 86% of Republicans declined to express trust in the media, nearly half of Democrats do as well. What happened? How did the mainstream media, for which truth was supposed to be stock in trade, lose the confidence of such a significant proportion of the population? How much of the decline in trust can be laid at the foot of a president who shouts fake news and derides the mainstream news media? The fake news is, in fact, and I hate to say this, in fact, the enemy of the people. And what other factors are at play? Has evolving technology, competition for ears and eyeballs, and chasing ad dollars contributed? And perhaps most important, how many of the news media's wounds have been self-inflicted. My guest is veteran broadcast news producer Judith Bishop. Judith covered breaking news at New York's WABC, produced in-depth coverage at CNBC with Tim Russert and Chris Matthews. She's covered three national conventions and most recently has been an on-air contributor for NPR out of Miami. Judith is the author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions, published by Palmetto. Judy, welcome to the Press Center. Thank you, Steve. It's terrific to be with you. 
you heard the KDKA clip, which, by the way, they couldn't capture it as cleanly in 1920 as 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 they did, obviously, in that clip. So that's a reenactment, and we're going to be talking about reenactments and uh, their role in um, in news media history uh, in a little while. But when you heard that and heard almost how humbly the announcers were asking, can anybody hear us? It's really kind of striking to see how far we've come. It certainly is. It reminded me of uh, Marconi or Alexander Graham Bell or being in an old-fashioned movie theater watching a black-and-white film. And it was really nostalgic, and it also proves the point, Steve, of how far we have come. Uh, well, you know, we have, not to say that we were around in 1920 to hear that initial broadcast, but uh, you and I go back some ways. By way of full disclosure, uh, we met, as I recall, at WOR-TV uh, in New York, which today is WWOR-TV. But at the time that uh, you and I worked there, I was the assignment editor and you were a field producer, uh, WOR was a uh, kind of a fixture on the emerging national landscape of cable television, which does which did not resemble in any way what we know as cable TV today. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, it was a transitional time. Um, we had stations that were local cable stations. We had UHF stations, ultra high frequency, and we had the burgeoning super station that we worked at, Channel 9 in New York City. It was located in the heart of Times Square, and I always found this amusing and still do. A friend was going to meet me one day after work, and she, I said, it's uh, 1440 Broadway. And she said, okay. Uh, she said, what kind of a building? And I said, well, it's a very small door, and it's wedged between the arcade and the porno theater. And she laughed. And I said, don't laugh. It really is a very small door, which between the it's, arcade it's, it's, and it's the right. porno theater. We were, we were right above a, a, an, an arcade called Playland, as I recall. It was 1481 Broadway, by the way. Oh, okay. uh, between Sorry. 42nd and 43rd, uh, WOR Radio, where I had worked prior to uh, WOR TV, was at 1440 Broadway, which is at the corner of 40th Street. But just in those two blocks, there was a huge transition of... Um, of uh, aesthetics, shall we say. And you climbed a rather steep staircase, but when you came upstairs, you were in another world from that Times Square squalor that existed at the time. You were in a very professional news operation with intelligent, motivated, and dedicated people, and there was a nice buzz as we... I often compare... Uh, pre-game uh, in a newsroom to a concerto. It builds, it starts slowly, and then it builds, and it builds, and it builds to a crescendo as you hit airtime. And that's what we experienced every day with a really terrific group of journalists. Let's talk about what exactly, because a lot of people out there listening probably have no idea what a superstation is. What did we mean by that? We meant that it was somehow magically, and I don't really understand the technology, but it was available to be seen in other markets. So what we were doing in the heart of Manhattan could be seen hypoth hypothetically in, in Denver or Sacramento. And so WOR was an early superstation. WGN in Chicago, today branded as WGN America, is available on cable across the country. WOR was at that time as well. And uh, we had a newscast. We had one newscast, which we pulled together, as I recall, with chewing gum and bailing wire. Um, we had a newscast at noon. It was called News at Noon. And you'll remember that to cover uh, 
uh, first of all, there was no such thing as a live shot back then, okay, because Channel 9 did not have a live truck. Um, we didn't even have, if I'm not mistaken, um, well, cell phones hadn't really hit the scene yet, so if you wanted to communicate with your crew, you had to call them on a, uh, you had to call them on a two-way radio, and sometimes crews were sent out even without the two-way radios and you had to page them and they'd have to pull over at a phone booth to to call them. And this was all with a deadline of noon to get on the air. So you had to do stories on a very quick turnaround. You'd come in at 7 or 8 in the morning and you'd have to be on the air by noon. It was a quick turnaround, absolutely. And you, as the assignment editor, had to come in ahead of all of us because that's the initial player, the person who gets the ball rolling every morning. Well, you know, my experience as an assignment editor at Channel 9 uh, was um, was really a baptism by fire. Uh, I had never worked in television, and I had worked my entire career at that point, which was uh, roughly six or seven years out of college, uh, in radio news. And I had come over to Channel 9 from the um, morning news editor, uh, news editor's role at WOR Radio. And the very first morning that I worked in television, I remember our managing editor, Ray Weiss, saying the biggest difference between radio and television is in television, you always have to think, what is the picture? What is the picture? Pictures drive television. Obviously, there are no pictures on radio. Words drive radio, but pictures drive television. And this, was, this really hit home for me when I realized that in order for television to work, especially in those days when, you know, uh, visuals were at something of a premium. It's before, the, it's before any digital videos ever hit the scene or any before any kind of digital enhancements of um, uh, not pictures but graphics and so forth. You really relied on dramatic photos. And so if a fire was happening, you needed to get to that fire when the flames were actually uh, shooting up out of the building before, you know, and the radio reporters couldn't care less about the pictures because they didn't need to. But we really had to. Yes, I remember phone conversations with people in the field saying, did you get the flames? Did you get the body, which is macabre, but, you know, that was important. But no matter what you were covering, whether it was a ribbon cutting or an explosion, you had to get the money shot. You had to get the shot that told the story. And then the better journalists wrote to the pictures so that when you were mentioning a certain thing, that's what the viewers were watching at that moment. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about... Uh, let, let's let's go back because my my thesis is, and I think you know this, that what happened to broadcast news, uh, it's a hundred years old now. What started to happen, started to happen in my view about halfway through the cycle, about 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the country was in turmoil. In many respects, the late 1960s, early 1970s have been compared to a time that we're, the, the time that we're going through today. Um, we had a very controversial war in uh, Southeast Asia, in Vietnam. Uh, president Nixon was in his first term and uh, he had a vice president, and it's notable to note that uh, the vice president Spiro Agnew had to resign later in, in disgrace, just as, just as Nixon did in 1974. But in 1969, that, none of that had happened yet. And Agnew, the former governor of Maryland, uh, decided to take on the news media. And the, uh, to my knowledge, it's the first time a national figure of the rank of either president or vice president of the United States had taken on news media in, in, such, a, in such a strong way. Agnew was complaining 
about something that we know today or was known back then as instant analysis of a presidential speech. Today, we kind of take that for granted. The president goes on. We have a panel to discuss afterwards what the president said, how he said it, what the implications are. But in the late 1960s, that was very new. And so when Nixon took to the airways to discuss the Vietnam War, in late 1969, he was followed immediately by correspondents weighing in with what the president had to say and laying out the larger stakes. So we're going to play a clip here uh, from a speech that um, Spiro, Agnew, Spiro Agnew gave in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, right after that address um, went on the air and this instant analysis followed it. And Agnew complained that neither Winston Churchill nor John F. Kennedy had to deal with being second-guessed after their speeches. And listen to what Agnew says next. Now, the upshot of all this controversy is that a narrow and distorted picture of America often emerges from the televised news. A single dramatic piece of the mosaic becomes, in the minds of millions, the entire picture. The American who relies upon television for his news might conclude that the majority of American students are embittered radicals that the majority of black Americans feel no regard for their country, that violence and lawlessness are the rule rather than the exception on the American campus. We know that none of these conclusions is true. Perhaps the place to start looking for a credibility gap is not in the offices of the government in Washington, but in the studios of the networks in New York. So Judy, the credibility gap is not in the government in Washington, but in the studios of the networks in New York. Now, granted, that was a Republican audience in Des Moines, Iowa, but it got a huge round of applause. What do we make of that? Is that the first salvo? I think it was. I think the Nixon administration and 1968 and that era have tremendous parallels to what we're experiencing today. I think that Nixon and the Trump people are appealing to the same uh, lower middle class and middle class white males who feel somehow disenfranchised and threatened by the rise of minorities and women and immigrants. And I, I, I see that cycle. I see that the divisions have become red and blue, us and them, good and evil. And it's, it's divisive, it's destructive, it's anti-democratic, but we're going through a similar cycle now. Um, two other points I wanted to make. One was that Back in the day, before radio, before television, there was instant analysis because print newspaper reporters for all the major newspapers in the country would watch the speech and they would immediately sit down at their typewriters and instantly analyze what they just heard. Now, the difference was we as the consumers in those days didn't have access to it to the morning, but they were doing an off-the-cuff, from-the-gut analysis of what they just heard. There was just a delay in the transmission process. Um, and also, I think a big difference, too, and, and I bring this out in my book, Changing Channels, yes, Nixon had an enemies list, but he regarded them as his personal enemies. Right now, we as journalists and our colleagues are being called enemies of the state. And what does that mean? It means treason. And that's a serious and despicable charge. We are not treasonous. We are human beings. And every now and then, one of us is going to make a mistake, which they can retract like a professional. But 
Treasonous, no. Enemies of the state, no. You know, distrust of the media is not a fully modern phenomenon, and I'm not even talking about you know, modern, if you consider 50 years ago, uh, the, the beginning of this modern, it has very, it goes back even further. There's another new book out by the presidential historian Harold Holzer, essentially arguing that it's always uh, been this way with politicians in the press, this antagonistic relationship. Uh, in particular, he noted that John Adams uh, signed sedition statutes into law that he actually used to prosecute journalists. And um, the, Abraham Lincoln had editors in prison during the Civil War war and went so far as to remove stories from the telegraph. So in some respects, that adversarial relationship has always been there. And those are two rather extreme examples. But um, you could also argue that that's maybe that's the way it should be. We should have this tension between the president's and, and the press. You're right. But there used to be rules to the game. Uh, truth was more of a factor. Uh, double and triple checking sources was more of a factor. And it wasn't personal. Um, you may have a politician and it's okay for a politician to criticize a journalist or a newspaper report or a radio report or a television report. That's the fabric of democracy. That's a good thing, that good and take, give and take. But when it becomes vindictive, uh, example, Donald Trump with the minority women reporters at the White House pool. Shocking, absolutely shocking. He's calling them snarky his questions, their questions, stupid. And you investigate some of those women. Abby Phillip of CNN, she graduated from Harvard. She worked for the Washington Post. She doesn't ask stupid questions. Yumi Shalsindor, previously with the New York Times, now with the PBS News Hour, she does not ask stupid questions. And April Ryan, who is one of the handful of veteran White House reporters, she's been doing this for decades. She knows the rules. She doesn't ask stupid questions. He's making it personal. And I find that very destructive and very demeaning. Speaking of broadcast news veterans, I'm speaking with one, Judith Bishop, the author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. You can find it on Amazon. I'm Steve Dunlop with this special edition of the Press Center. Uh, you touched on something I'd like to explore a little bit, uh, Judy, uh, that this distrust of the media is kind of reflected in many ways in an increasing red state, blue state divide in our country uh, which in turn reflects the increasing urban versus rural uh, divide. I actually had an experience a week before the, the 2016 election. Um, as a communications trainer at that time, well before COVID, I had to travel all over the country. And um, I found myself in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with a training, wrapping up a training, and the following day uh, needing to be in Toledo, Ohio. And that's about 240 miles. Uh, I decided rather than fly, it didn't make much sense to fly such a short distance, I would, and I had the time to do it, I would rent a car and simply drive. And I had a chance to drive along the interstate running uh, roughly between, well, from Pittsburgh up to Cleveland and then over to Toledo across the top of Ohio. And what struck me as I passed through what we know now was swing state, steel country, farm country, you had these uh, Trump-Pence hand-painted signs out by, out by the expressway, right? So what do we got? We've got 
farmers, we've got small towners feeling so strongly about this candidate, not that they would go out and just take any sign and put it by the side of the road. They took the time to actually make these signs by hand. That's how passionate they were about Trump-Pence and the... And of course, we all know what happened on election night. We all know how that story turned out. But no one was expecting uh, the outcome of the 2016 race, perhaps least of all Donald Trump. So I guess my question here is, uh, first of all, that that red state, blue state divide, we know that it's real. But what are journalists missing by not covering small towns as well as perhaps we used to in the days of Charles Kuralt, who literally, uh, the former CBS uh, correspondent who founded the series On the Road, who literally traveled the, the, um, the country in a Winnebago and found stories no one else was seeing. That's right, Charles Corot on the road. It was it was really a slice of Americana. You mentioned this road trip uh, in the run up to the 2016 election, and Michael Moore, I think, had a similar experience. He was primarily in small towns in the Rust Belt, and he could feel the groundswell for Trump Pence, and he predicted a victory. And everyone said, oh, Michael, you're crazy. But he said, no. He said, I- I'm feeling the pulse of America. And this is where uh, the middle Americans are. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I don't know if it's a good thing or if it's a bad thing. But the media capitals of the world are New York, Washington, California. Less- and that's, and, and is, that a repres- is that representing the whole country, or is it representing a slice of the country that just happens to be geographically well-positioned? Well, it it is somewhat an exclusive club. I think it used to be worse because it was all male, it was all white, and they all went to the same colleges and subscribed to the same philosophies. So maybe the key is diversity in the newsroom. Maybe at big operations in metropolitan areas, you need more minorities. You need more people from the farm belt, more people from the rest belt. And you don't need uh, Harvard and Yale and Princeton graduates populating the newsrooms. Um, We're seeing those changes with a broader demographic. But uh, it's very, very true. Um, When we were at the reporters together at Fox, we're jumping ahead a bit. Remember, Steve, how we used to get newspapers from all over the country? Yes. Yes, we would have them delivered uh, from all over the country. They would arrive by mail. And this, of course, is prior to the Internet being as useful it was no it was it, it really didn't exist uh, in in the late 1980s when you and I worked on that uh, uh, groundbreaking news magazine for Fox television this is prior way prior to the uh, beginning of the Fox News Channel um, I want to circle back to that in a minute but uh, let's talk a little bit so we can stay kind of on the uh, the, the the timeline around the time of this first round of criticism of the news media, it's the early 1970s. First, I'd like you to go back to, to that time with me. Uh, this was a time, as you rightly pointed out, when newsrooms were largely all male. And I, I'm curious for your first story, walking into a newsroom where you more than likely were surrounded by uh, mostly, if not exclusively, men. It was years before I had a female boss. We used to joke and say, wouldn't it be nice one day to run into your boss in the ladies' room? 
<laughs> and eventually it <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, so around that time, this, this is, again, the 1970s, um, I know that uh, you went on to work after we worked at... Um, at uh, WOR-TV together. You became a producer for WABC-TV, and this was in what some people um, today call, and even back then called, the happy news era. Uh, it was an era where local broadcast news became obsessed with ratings, and consultants were brought in to tailor the look and feel of newscasts with an eye towards what the audience wanted to hear versus perhaps what the audience needed to hear. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there? Absolutely. Um, it was exhilarating to be in the number one market as, as we both worked and at a station that was really highly rated and every rating point mattered. Um, at one point in time, the powers that be hired a firm. I believe it was Frank Maggot's firm. And they spent quite a bit of money. I was never privy to the invoice, as I point out in my book, but I know that it was a lot of of money. They came back with a four-word formula that would produce ratings nirvana. Tits, tots, pets, and vets. And what that meant was we should... How, how, much, how much did they pay for those four words? <laughs> I would bet you well into six figures. <laughs> Maybe we were in the wrong business, Steve. I don't wrong know. Wrong business, indeed. But they meant do stories on beautiful women, on adorable toddlers on household pets and heroic veterans, and also lots and lots of weather. And that always amused me because we'd send reporters out to be in the rush hour traffic in the middle of the storms. And I would think, you know, if I'm home watching this 35 miles from the traffic jam, I really don't care. And in those days, if I were in my car in the traffic jam, I couldn't get TV in my vehicle in those days. So who were they really appealing to? But somehow they had a weather obsession, whether it was a flood, a tornado, a hurricane, or a snowstorm. And it, it didn't was take all about it was all about the picture, right? It you was, know? it was, and it didn't take a whole lot of snow. Sometimes an inch would do it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I've, I've covered many snowstorms, uh, many hurricanes, uh, many ice storms, uh, many floods, and uh, pictures are what really drive those stories for television. Uh, in addition, of course, to the obvious uh, human uh, tolls that, that some of those uh, storms can take. And, uh, but when you learned, Judy, that, um, that consultants were being paid so much money to influence or perhaps even dictate the kinds of stories that now got covered was that the beginning of the news media kind of shooting itself in the foot and and hurting its own credibility concomitant with the attacks from agnew and others i was appalled frankly because some of the people conducting these surveys were marketers and salespeople. They were not journalists and i thought why don't we have enough faith in our ability to discern what's news and what's filler. Why are we going to people who don't have the qualifications that we have? It, it seemed to me that we were marketing toothpaste and it was, it was a terrible analogy. Um, so yeah, that bothered me tremendously. And we made a joke of it. I, when I say we, the troops in the newsroom made a joke of it. I, I don't know if the executives really bought into it, 
but it was um, it was really the beginning of a trend. Give them what they want rather than what they need. And that's not what journalism is supposed to be all about. Uh, I never objected to what we in the business called the kicker at the end. You know, after an hour of death and destruction and corruption, if you had a pleasant story at the end and a way to sign off and say good night, that was okay, or a beautiful weather shot. But but not to structure your rundown for an hour with, with these principles in mind that you have to appeal to the lowest common denominator. I'm Steve Dunlop with a special edition of the Press Center. I'm talking with veteran broadcast news producer Judith Bishop. She's the author of Changing Channels from Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. I'd like to jump ahead a few years, if we could, uh, Judy, to the rise of CNN, uh, which I remember in 1980 when the network got started and they announced their first major hire, Daniel Shore, who for years was the legal correspondent at CBS News and, uh, in fact, uh, made Nixon's enemies list, which he was very, very proud of having done. Uh, We thought, why is this veteran icon of journalism moving over to what we call derisively the chicken noodle network. Uh, today, of course, CNN is known as, the, as, as kind of the patriarch of the cable news scene because it, it, was, it was there first. Uh, and it reflects also how we're beginning now a move away from three dominant networks on the American scene into a new era where competition is starting to increase. You talk about that. CNN, as you pointed out, launched on June 1st, 1980. It was brilliant. It was visionary. It was gutsy as a concept. But the execution, honestly, was repetitive. You would hear the same thing. They had a wheel. I don't know whether it was a 20-minute wheel or what it was, but it repeated and repeated and repeated. And they, too, fell into the trap of these time-killing features on lighter subjects. But there was a moment, and in my mind, the moment was March 30th, 1981, when President Reagan was shot. And suddenly, the value of CNN to be on the spot with real hard breaking news was just mind-blowing. I can remember the the newsroom I was working in at the time, we were all gathered around it with jaws somewhat open that we were getting this rapid-fire report about a huge breaking story with tremendous implications. And then, of course, fast forward a bit to the Iraq War One. I mean, will we ever forget Wolf Blitzer standing there with fire and awe going on, shock and awe, I guess it was, in the background? So I personally, I am a huge fan of CNN. I will express a personal opinion. I think they're the best. I really do. Um, And now we're in a world where we have rapid-fire events, uh, breaking news all the time. Now, yes, some of it really is breaking news and some of it is breaking hype, but it's compelling. And... The competition has only gotten more intense because technology has enabled that competition in ways that that were just not 
economically feasible in years past. It was incredibly expensive to run three network news operations uh, in the 1950s and 60s and into the 70s. Uh, but as you start to get into the 80s with uh, the uh, transition from film, which is inherently bulky and takes time to develop, into videotape, uh, cameras got smaller. You no longer needed a third person on a camera crew. You could get by, uh, which was the lighting person usually. You could get by with a, with a two-person crew and later a one-person crew. Equipment got smaller, less expensive. This, this enabled the, this proliferation of outlets first on cable and, of course, now on the Internet to the point where a radio news reporter, if we fast forward to today, if they've got an iPhone, they have a radio news studio. They've even got a TV news studio if they want to do hits for TV. Absolutely. Um, two points come to mind. One of them is access. In the good old days, watching the network news was appointment viewing. It was on at 6, 6.30, or 7, depending on the market you lived in. You either watched it then or it was game over. But with CNN, no matter what your lifestyle was, whether you worked the late shift or the morning shift, didn't matter. You could come home and you could turn that television on and get news. Plus the fact that if something broke, you'd see it immediately. You didn't have to wait four, five, six hours for the network newscast. So it was really a brilliant concept, and I think it's still Still is. Um, and I think we have news junkie addicts. I really think we have people who get up in the morning and they hit that remote and want to see what's happening. And then they go to bed with the TV on. So it's an addiction, but it's also an education. So it's a plus, not a minus. It is now easier or even imperative, given this explosive growth in, in the places where you can get news, uh, that... Um, that the advertising pie has been split multiple ways, right? Because, you know, you could you could now take an audience that used to be divided into thirds and divide it into sixteenths, uh, twentieths. I don't know how many fractions I can go down, but this cantonization of the audience, uh, combine that with the decreasing cost of actually getting on the air or getting your message out now on, on the Internet as well, it's it, these smaller outlets, which would have been economically infeasible in decades past, are now not just economically feasible, but potentially economically profitable as never before in broadcast. It's it's sort of like it's it's sort of like we now have a magazine rack, whereas in the past we had such limited choice. And that, to me, has encouraged some of the division that we've seen because we're not all getting our news from the same source. We're not all getting our facts from the same source. So naturally, you're going to have some division as to what facts are relevant in a particular story or not. Well, the title of my book, Changing Channels, is a double entendre. I picked it because the viewers are changing to the channel that best reflects their political beliefs, and the channels are changing the way they approach news because of that built-in division and also because of the uniqueness of dealing with a president like Donald Trump. So, yeah, there is this fragmentation, and it's across the board. It's not only in news, but it's in other programs. It used to be just 
ESPN, all sports, all the time. But then we got the Golf Channel and the Tennis Channel and Speed Vision Channel, and there's probably four more uh, sports channels that I'm not mentioning. And that fragmentation is across the board in news as well. This growing of the number of media outlets, the proliferation of outlets beginning in the 1980s, uh, had an interesting consequence in 1987 when the Federal Communications Commission uh, actually uh, eliminated uh, something that was known as the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, this was instituted in 1949, applied to over-the-air broadcast media uh, with the aim of encouraging those outlets to uh, give voice to different, diverse opinions on issues of public interest. And the whole rationale for this, of course, goes back to, you know, the, the media by its nature is a scarce resource. The public airwaves are, are limited, right? Uh, cable kind of upended all of that, and now the Fairness Doctrine is eliminated, uh, giving uh, broadcasters uh, the uh, right to uh, air opinions uh, without necessarily giving similar weight to another side. Did that was that the beginning of what we see today in terms of this really divided, at least politically divided, media landscape? When the Fairness Doctrine was enforced, the ground rules were easy for us. You booked one from column A and one from column B. You had a liberal spouting their philosophy. You had a conservative spouting their philosophy. Now, the problem with that, especially in New York in the 80s, the early 80s, was there were just a handful of articulate, media-savvy conservatives. You went for Bill Buckley. He was numero uno. If you couldn't get him, you went for Bill Rusher. And if you couldn't get him, you usually ended up with a politician from Staten Island. So that made the process difficult, even though our objective was to be uh, fair and balanced and to have strong people on both sides of the issue. It didn't necessarily always work out like that because as you and your listeners know, New York is a very heavily liberal democratic city. In addition to the fairness doctrine, Steve, we had equal time regulations also in place. And that was really difficult. It was easy to give equal time to the Republicans and to the Democrats. That was a basic, easy calculation. But what about the third-party candidates? Some of them were esoteric. Some of them were not only off-center, they were a little off-balance with their issues, single issues that hardly anyone cared about. And that really made it very difficult. So the solution that we came up with was that the uh, Republican got the full hour program, the Democrat got the full hour program, and we grouped all the third-party candidates together, people that were polling, God knows, 1% or less, and we had a panel to represent their views. Well, you know, Judy, critics on the right would probably argue that, uh, in fact, most reporters are politically uh, liberal. Uh, there is a, a study, it's actually in its fifth or sixth incarnation, I believe, out of Indiana University uh, that began in 1971 when uh, the uh, st study's authors found that 25 percent of uh, reporters identified themselves as Republican. Uh, that figure shrank to 18 percent in 2002 and just 7% uh, seven years ago, 2013, when the last measurement was taken. Doesn't that tend to uh, give credence to 
arguments among conservatives that there is a real liberal media bias and that it's not their imagination. When that study was initiated, Steve, back in 1971, there was such a similarity in newsrooms. First of all, the uh, people who populated them were male. Secondly, they were white. Thirdly, they were fairly well-educated and even went to the same schools and had the same philosophies inculcated. Uh, we called them the D.C. New York Access. It was a very insular group, and these people fought alike. And I guess that uh, that's probably what occasioned that study that you referenced. Ben Shapiro, a conservative podcaster, um, thinks he has a solution. And his solution is that journalists declare their political parties in advance. So the, the uh, viewing and the listening and the reading public can measure that. They'll have a yardstick to go by. I'm Steve Dunlop with a special edition of the Press Center. I'm talking with veteran broadcast news producer Judith Bishop. She's the author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. Many people will look back and see uh, not Spiro Agnew uh, in 1969 as kind of the turning point for broadcast news, uh, or not even the happy news consultant-driven era of the 1970s. Many will look back and say that the Big Bang, helping to create what we know today as this fragmented, divided media landscape, uh, was really in 1985 when uh, an Australian um, uh, press executive by the name of Rupert Murdoch purchased a chain of television stations from uh, Metromedia. Uh, Metromedia was owned by John Kluge. Uh, today, Kluge's long gone, but at that time, he was actually the richest man in the world in a time before uh, Bill Gates uh, was still wet behind the ears. Uh, Kluge sold those stations to Murdoch, and that became the nucleus of what we know today as the Fox Network. This was still a, a decade or more before the birth of the Fox News Channel. But you and I both worked at Fox. I had actually been at Metromedia at WNEW-TV as a news reporter and anchor uh, prior to Murdoch's uh, purchase of those stations. So I was there uh, kind of as a witness to, to, to the mammoth changes that Murdoch was, was introducing. Um, he spent money like crazy. Uh, we suddenly had all kinds of resources and all kinds of expenses for camera crews and to cover stories. We actually purchased a live truck uh, that actually did live shots uh, as opposed to simply riding around as a, as a billboard uh, with uh, Channel 5 slapped on the side of it. Um, and then in 1988, um, I was asked by Ian Ray, who was uh, the news director at uh, at Channel 5, WNEW, WNYW, the call letters had changed to when it was bought by Fox. He said, I'd like to put you on a um, show that we're doing as kind of an answer to 60 Minutes, and it's called The Reporters. Uh, you and I both wound up working on The Reporters, and you saw, as I did, how uh, as part of the tabloid ethos, reenactments of news events or more, more to the point, gory or sometimes criminal occurrences that became news, they were really baked into the cake in that approach to news introduced in the late 1980s. I'm curious for your thoughts, uh, Judy Bishop, as to how seeing news events reenacted, just as we heard, I mean, KDKA, that, that there were no tape recorders around in 1920. What we heard at the beginning of this uh, podcast was a reenactment. Did that contribute to the decline of trust in news media, in the news media, in any serious way looking back? I think so. 
I think personally I feel guilty as charged. I produced reenactments and the process went something like this. First of all, you went to uh, theatrical agents and you looked through dozens of headshots to find the actor or actress who most looked like the real person in the story, body type, hair color, age. Then you hired them and paid them. Then you brought them to a rented, hypothetically, motel room or hospital corridor. And when you edited, you used eerie music. You were setting a mood. You were making statements visually and with music. And you were making a mini movie. Part of me thought, this is totally cool. I'm making a movie. And part of me thought, this is not the journalism I'm used to or the journalism that I want to aspire to. So I was really conflicted about it. Um, I tried very, very hard at the reporters to limit myself to crime and justice stories. I did not want to trash celebrities. I did not want to sit in their driveways when they brought the baby home from the hospital and get the money shot of the baby. I thought that was not journalism. That was exploitation. And I also did not want to pay. Um, I'm not going to name names because I don't really have all the facts, but I never paid sources. I got into one argument with the powers that be once. I was doing a story about um, an elderly man in Maine who had married a young woman, very young, and he died. And there was some question of whether or not she had perhaps killed him. And she was a beneficiary of his estate. And there were three adult sons of this deceased man who were fighting her over the estate. And they wanted money to participate in the story to give us their side of it because it was going to court and it was going to be a big legal battle in Maine and um, came down to the fact and it wasn't a lot of money there were three brothers and they wanted $300 a piece for expenses so I said to them if you were traveling hypothetically to Boston to meet me to do this shoot I would legitimately pay your legitimately legitimate expenses but you're going to be sitting in your living room in Maine. You don't have any expenses. I can't do that. And I got lucky. The story fell apart for reasons that had nothing to do with it. I think that the the court put the case on hold and then the timing didn't work out and we dropped it. But I thought, I'm not paying for for information. I'm not paying for sources. That's not what journalism is. That's more like making a movie. You pay the stars. But but that is something, and n n now I think it can be said that um, that uh, uh, though in those early days at at Fox in the in, in the tabloid genre, stories were routinely quote unquote paid for. Um, I, I have to stop here and, and just note that I'm a member of the Society of Professional Journalists. Uh, I'm actually a, a, on the board of the New York chapter. And um, SPJ notes the following on its website, and I'm just going to quote this. Paying for interviews directly or indirectly through so-called licensing fees is now accepted practice in Great Britain and has been used by tabloid publications in the United States. Our code of ethics admonishes journalists to be wary of sources offering information for favors of money and to avoid bidding for news. So you can see very clearly SPJ comes down on the side of, you know, checkbook journalism is just flat out wrong. What are you, how do you go about explaining that to someone with a story who says, hey, you're a for-profit network. Uh, I need to share in that profit if I'm going to tell you my story 
But on the other hand, you recognize that the perception could very well be that if you are paying someone for their knowledge, that you are now in a position to influence what that person is going to want to tell you by virtue of the size of the check. It's the quintessential slippery slope. If a person has the only photograph of the event that you're covering and they get a photo credit and you pay for it, that might be the only exception to the rule. But other than that, if, if you're just going to give me an interview, I'm not paying you for it. No way. My guest is Judith Bishop, author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. Judith is a broadcast news veteran. You can find the book, by the way, on Amazon. I'm Steve Dunlop with a special edition of the Press Center. Uh, let's talk about Donald Trump. Uh, I remember one of my earliest interviews with Donald Trump was on his yacht. He had just purchased it from a uh, Saudi Arabian financier named Adnan Khashoggi. And he decided to unveil it to the media on the 4th of July, 1988, as something of, he said, I, I, and I quote, I want, I thought this country should have it. I thought this country should have it. When in fact, of course, it was Donald Trump's yacht, and he made a point of saying that as well. Um, but I wonder how much, um, since this happened at around the same time, I wonder how astute a student of the kind of churn and ethical quandaries in the news media, did Donald Trump see an opening at that point? And is that kind of what led him to the Donald Trump we know today? When I look back on that time frame of working at Channel 7 Eyewitness News in New York City, there were two people who manipulated and used us, and we in return manipulated and used them for higher ratings. And they were Donald Trump and Al Sharpton. And my first experience with Donald Trump, it seemed like nothing at the time. But in hindsight, Steve, it was mind-blowing. When The Art of the Deal came out, I was producing a Sunday morning uh, political talk show, the local version of a Meet the Press, and we booked Donald Trump. He was a major player in the New York scene. He had a book that had pre-sales destined to be number one on the bestseller list, legitimate booking. I was in the newsroom about 20, 30 minutes before the, new, uh, the, the actual taping, and my phone rang, and it was Tony Schwartz, the fellow who co-wrote the book, or wrote it, depending on which version you believe, and he said, hey, did you want to make some news? And I said, sure. And he said, ask him about Russia. This was in 1987. And I said, well, Tony, we can ask the question, but first I need to know the answer. And he said, he is going to build a Trump Tower in Moscow across from the Kremlin. Now, at the time, I thought, well, that's kind of a cool scoop. Now, it opens up a whole can of worms. His roots in Russia go back to the late 1980s. You know, Lord knows what kind of compromat, uh, either personal or financial or criminal, could have evolved over all these decades. In the book, I call the Trump Tower in Moscow his Moby Dick. It was always within reach, but always elusive. And I think it still is. And going back that far, Michael Cohen, in his uh, book on, uh, on his experiences with Donald Trump, Disloyal, Michael Cohen, having been the personal attorney to Trump for, for so many years, actually made the point that if you look at all the reasons why Donald Trump was elected, 
how it actually came to be that far and away the biggest reason is the free press. And he does not mean free in the sense of freedom of the press in the First Amendment. He means the free press that he was able to generate free media just by being Donald Trump. We could not resist Donald Trump because he was such an unusual character. Absolutely. When I was producing Eyewitness News Conference, uh, our ratings would guarantee double when we booked Donald Trump and usually triple. That is catnip to producers, you know, if you can double or triple just by one booking. And that happened, I think, during the run-up to 2016. No one took him seriously, but he was a proverbial train wreck. You could not take your eyes off him. He was funny in some ways. He was provocative, and he was shocking. You never knew what he was going to say or who he was going to attack. And it made for, quote, good television in some people's eyes because it rated. Now, was it quality good television because it illuminated issues or educated the voters? No. But I think that a lot of uh, broadcast journalists are determined not to make that mistake again. And as I'm sure you've noticed, Steve, sometimes on those coronavirus briefings at five o'clock, they'll dump out of it if they feel that he's starting to talk about the wall or that climate change is nonsense, that things that are off the point, they're being uh, exercising discretion and cutting them off. You know, you, you you raise an interesting point, though, that uh, uh, back then we did not take Donald Trump seriously. And I agree with you. He was something he was something of a tabloid character. He kind of fit in with the whole bonfire of the vanities age, uh, that famous uh, novel by Tom Wolfe, which has kind of become emblematic of the 1980s. And uh, he he was a character and, uh, you know, a punchline in many respects to any New York joke you'd want to tell. I remember doing a story about the Beatles, uh, the 30th anniversary of the Beatles arrival in America and interviewing a, a doorman at the Plaza Hotel and having a, having asked the question of this elderly doorman, have you ever seen anything as big in the years intervening? as the 1964 arrival of the Beatles and the subsequent pandemonium it caused at the Plaza Hotel. And he thought for just a second and he said, Donald Trump's wedding? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? We can ask that now. That was actually number two. Um, you said something, though, before about Donald Trump being taken, not being taken seriously. There was a line I heard consistently in the 2016 campaign to try to explain the appeal of Donald Trump, and it is this. His critics take Trump literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. What's your take on that? I think it's pretty accurate. I never saw it in those terms until you called it to my attention. But I, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Um, the saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think pol political rhetoric sometimes is in the eye and the ear of the beholder. That people hear what they want to hear. Sometimes they hear what they crave to hear. And they make excuses for the hyperbole, and they make excuses for the lies. And I think that happens on both sides of the spectrum. I really do. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a perceptive comment. 
I'm reminded of that 1969 ballad by uh, Simon and Garfunkel, The Boxer. And there's a line at the very beginning of the song that says, All lies and jest, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. My guest is Judith Bishop, the author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. You can find the book on Amazon. I'm Steve Dunlop with a special edition of the Press Center. Uh, Judy, in your research for this book, you talked to many leading journalists of the past half century. Uh, so many diff- so many names come to mind. I'm, I'm hesitant to start the litany because you spoke to so many of them. Whose opinion in your research jumped off the page at you, surprised you maybe the most? I guess the most surprising line came from Katie Turr. She wrote a book, Unbelievable, where she fessed up that during the 19... Uh, 19, the 2016 race, when she was the road warrior covering Donald Trump, she didn't vote. And the reason she didn't vote is she felt she had an inherent conflict of interest. Because usually, traditionally in the news business, if you are the campaign correspondent with a candidate and that candidate wins and goes all the way to the White House, you win. And you go all the way to the White House because you know him or her, you know the beat, you know the insiders, and you become the White House correspondent for your network. So she felt that that was an inherent conflict of interest, and that really surprised me. One last item I'd like to touch on, and that is an interview that uh, CBS News correspondent Scott Pelley did with uh, Brian Stelter on uh, CNN's Reliable Sources last year. Uh, In that interview, he suggested that uh, a lot of um, our ability to combat what has become known as fake news rests on our willingness to consider multiple sources of information. I'm going to play a clip from, uh, from, from that broadcast, and let's have a listen. So what are we supposed to do? People ask me. And what I tell them is, and it's a little bit self-serving, but I tell them to go to brand name sources of journalism, CNN, CBS, NBC, the New York Times, the the Los Angeles Times, whatever you want to do. But if you see something on the Internet that you wonder about or that outrages you, then do what has never been possible before. Look at a variety of other sources. Spend 10 minutes figuring out whether that story is true. I wonder what CNN is saying about that. I wonder what the Chicago Tribune is saying about that. And triangulate your information. Like I said, our viewers Mm -hmm. have never had to do that in history. And today, it's going to be mandatory. What are your thoughts on what individuals can do to help end this scourge? When you pointed that quote out to me and I thought about it, I thought excellent advice. Triangulation is good. It, it's good for journalism. It's, it's good if you have a medical problem, you get more than one opinion. If you're going to buy a home, you listen to more than one broker. And in the search for truth, I think it's a great idea to have multiple sources of news. One of the people in my book, uh, Larry Sabato, the University of Virginia, Uh, says that some TV news is a junk food diet and we have to have a healthy food intake. And that would mean multiple sources and some gourmet food in in that mix. You know, read the Times, read the Post, um, and watch the major networks. Don't limit yourself to the one that's your echo chamber. 
One last question, uh, Judith Bishop, that I'd like to pull is actually from the pull from the prologue of your book. Actually, will broadcast journalism revert to the old normal? You ask, or is this the new normal? In short, what if anything can be done to restore trust? I think what's really missing from the dialogue, the back and forth between the politicians and the press right now is one word, respect. I think that if we can get back on track where it's not about personalities, it's not about you hate me and I hate you, it is about the issues. And if we can stick to those issues and present both sides of the question, then I think that's the best thing that the press can do to restore credibility, to try to eliminate the inflammatory language, to not appear to be on the defensive, to appear to be above the fray, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. To paraphrase the veteran uh, late ABC newscaster Howard K. Smith, uh, we need to generate perhaps more light than heat. We'll have to leave it there. Judy Bishop, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Steve. It was terrific. I've been speaking with Judith Bishop, the author of Changing Channels, From Just the Facts to Outrageous Opinions. You can find the book on Amazon. I'm Steve Dunlop with a special edition of The Press Center. This special edition of The Press Center has been a copyrighted production of Dunlop Media, Inc., all rights reserved. To subscribe to our RSS feed, visit dunlopmedia.com forward slash podcast.